Hi, JP. I am uh, so excited that we finished this mini series on cognition. And as we were doing this, I know we only scratched the surface of functional neurosurgery, but it occurred once again to me about how how much breadth there is in our field. That is that there's so many types of neurosurgery in terms of the, the, the procedures we do, the pathologies we treat, and the type of surgeons. And so, um, you know, as we go forward, I was thinking that maybe you and I could start to talk to folks who are very specialized within our field. Yeah, I think that would be of great benefit. I mean, speaking selfishly as someone early in my training with uh, all these different potential pathways open before me, but also to many of our listeners, both at a current uh, similar level to myself who might be selecting a a field for their career, uh, people who have an interest in the field of neurosurgery in general, but aren't uh, particularly familiar with the various sub-disciplines for those who choose to continue with their specialization, uh, but even people like yourself who are out there practicing, well-established in their own field, who might not be in touch with or keep up with what exactly is going on down in the depths of specialization in the other sub-disciplines of neurosurgery. Right, right. And one of the maybe artificial frameworks, but it's a nice one to work with, is to work within the AANS's um sections. In other words, the, those of you who are not familiar, the ANS has subsections that are in co- cooperation with the CNS, its sister organization. And those nine sections, they're an artificial division, right? But I'll just name them for you. They're the ANS history section, the cerebrovascular section, the neurotrauma and critical care section, the section on pain, the section on pediatric neurosurgery, the section on disorders of the spine and peripheral nerves, the section on stereotactic and functional uh, surgery, the section on tumors, and finally, the WINS, Women in Neurosurgery section. And of course, these sections all have leaders, so we're going to be looking forward to interviewing, if you will, the chair or the president of each one of these sections. Yeah, I cannot wait to both have and share these conversations with all of our listeners, because this is another rare opportunity for someone in my position and for all of our audience to sit down with people who have, by definition, really served in roles of leadership and sometimes field-changing roles within their sub-disciplines within neurosurgery. And I will point out for our listeners, as someone who is from a large family, the youngest of six kids, uh, we are selecting the order to feature these various subsections uh, exactly as Dr. Wang just listed them, not alphabetically, not in order of favoritism, not for any particular order except that which is listed on the website featuring the joint section, so no one can feel like we're playing favorites. That's a, that's a great point, JP, the, the order <laughs> in which we do this, yeah. Well, I, you know, neurosurgeons are naturally competitive, and, and so are we, and so we're really proud that we're approaching 200,000 listens, which for a podcast like this, which is really not intended for the general public, right? It is really a phenomenal, um, phenomenal achievement, and thanks to our listeners out there. And we would like to hear back from you, J- uh, JP. Maybe you can talk about how we would like to hear about uh, about comments about this next, uh, if you will, mini series. Well, as always, uh, it is never more pleasant and never more fulfilling than when we hear from our listeners. And we've heard back from people worldwide, obviously mostly in the United States, but people from institutions all around the world at all levels, from medical students to undergraduate students to attending physicians in nations overseas who have heard our podcast and wanted to share their feedback with us. We've heard back from general episodes. We've heard back during various uh, series and mini-series that we've done before. And for this series in particular, 
Obviously, any comments or questions or feedback is always welcome. But on the outset of this series, looking at the various sub-disciplines and the subsections within neurosurgery, we thought it would be fun kind of to ask you at the outset, and then we'll discuss it more later within the series, but what, what are your views, you listeners, and what are your feelings about these stereotypes or the archetypes of various different subdivisions of neurosurgeons? Let's say you're a pediatric neurosurgeon. How do you think of yourself? In your mind, what is the stereotypical pediatric neurosurgeon? And then contrarywise, let's say you're a spine surgeon. How does a spine surgeon think of the quintessential tumor guy, so to speak? So you can always reach us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at neurosurgerypodcast, N-S-G-Y podcast. So please write to us, reach out to us on Twitter or by email, and let us know in your eyes what are the archetypal forms of the subspecialties within neurosurgery. And finally, lest you think we forgot, it's time to share the solution to Dr. Jacques Morcos' riddle from his last episode on the show. If you recall, the riddle involved measuring 45 minutes using two pieces of rope that inconsistently burn for one hour from one end to another. I'll let you revisit the episode to get the details and the constraints of the problem, but briefly, the solution is as follows. Take one piece of rope and light it at both ends. Simultaneously, light the other piece of rope at one end. As the first piece of rope completes its burn from both ends, that measures 30 minutes. At that moment, light the other end of the other piece of rope, which is necessarily burned through for 30 minutes, and now has 30 minutes remaining to burn. As you light the far end, you're now burning from both ends, and so what was 30 minutes remaining will, in fact, be 15 minutes of burning, and therefore you've measured 30 followed by 15 minutes, giving you around 45 minutes. Thanks again to Dr. Morcos for coming on the show and right off the top of his head giving us another great brain teaser. We can't wait to have him on again to share another riddle with all of you. But for now, let's get on with today's show. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. And welcome to another episode in our mini-series on the AANS CNS sections. Today, we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Tio Fortdagi, who is the chair of the history section. Tio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's very good to be here. Tio, let's let's begin by having you introduce uh, yourself. And I know your biography is very long, but give us a summary of how you came to be a neurosurgeon and, and what your life has been like as a neurosurgeon. I've always wanted to do neurosurgery since I was a child. I don't know that I can tell you precisely what precipitated it, except for knowing neurosurgeons, perhaps as a child. Um, I ended up being very interested in neuroscience and medical school. I also was interested in the culture and history of medicine. And so my senior year of medical school, which was at Hopkins, I was able to do uh, what was essentially a parallel year with Oswe Temkin, 
who was then the head of the um, section of the history of medicine and the Institute for the History of Medicine. And, and that probably instilled in me an appreciation of the past and began to give me some of the tools to ask questions. How did things happen before? Why they happened? And what was the effect um, on what we do today? I then trained in neurosurgery at the Mass General. And just by chance, the people who surrounded me were people who were in the first and second generations of neurosurgeons after Cushing. So in the operating room, we very often talked about the history of how procedures were done. Um, the ruptured disc, for example, was not always seen as just a ruptured disc. It was initially thought perhaps to be a tumor. And how that idea came to be and how that idea um, came to be overturned was something I heard a lot about. By the same token, uh, my chief, William Sweet, initially had a tremendous interest in neurosurgical innovation. Um, one of the things that he started working on and then uh, recruited Dr. Chelberg to was the proton beam. And I recall going to MIT with um, tremendous contraptions which were uh, attempts to reproduce the stereotactic radiotherapy that was still in its very early stages using the proton beam and trying to figure out what the proton beam could actually be used for. Another thing that we talked about a lot was pituitary surgery and approaches to the pituitary. And it turns out that one of the people who trained me in transphenoidal surgery was from Vienna and was involved in the European schools and probably was one of the people who influenced Harvey Cushing in his view of pituitary surgery. So it was very hard to avoid a sense of institutional history as a neurosurgeon. Um, then I ended up in England. I did a year at uh, the Maudsley and in England, the people who surrounded me were also at the most three generations away from the early English neurosurgeons. And the English love history and use it all the time. So I was surrounded by it and I guess I assimilated it. So Theo, tell us a little about the, the history section, right? Tell us about what its purpose is and, and why it's important for people to remember uh, uh, the past lessons in our field. You know, that's not only is that a great question, it's an important question, Mike. Everybody that I know who's ever written a paper in neurosurgery does history, whether or not they know it, whether or not they are inclined to think of it in those terms. When you put down an introduction and you say the reason we're doing this paper is, when you do a discussion and say, well, previous literature has said the following, but we're saying something else. When you come to further studies or when you encourage people to do additional investigation, what you're doing is adding to a paradigm of knowledge that's based on the past. Um, I had one mentor who was very good in, in saying, you know, uh, when you do history, what you're really saying is on the basis of certain facts or certain things I believe to be factually true, I think that there ought to be a conclusion that looks like this. 
so I believe A and B are true, and so I think D and E should be the conclusion. But wait, I've looked at it, and you know, it's not D and E, it's F and G. Why does that happen? And you can think of that as good research, but that's also good history. And in understanding the way we got to certain places, we can also recall and retrieve things that are very important to advancing in the future. So the interest in history is not only about the past, it's about the present, and it's about developing perspectives for the future and being educated in what things have worked in the past and what things may be adapted for the future. Now, thinking about the interest in history, which it, it seems you had even prior to your career in neurosurgery, as, as you told us, you came up uh, working in the history of medicine and, and had that innate interest with you. Um, I wonder if for those of us in the field now who are coming up ourselves, uh, I'm currently in my training uh, early on in residency, even as we're trying to learn all of this anatomy, learn all of these procedures, I know that I do and, and many of my co-residents and friends that I talk to do have a deep interest in learning where this knowledge came from and where this field came from. What kind of uh, services or materials does the history section offer for people who may be interested in studying the history of neurosurgery? Again, an excellent question. The best thing we have to offer is mentorship. If people have an interest in writing a paper, we're very glad to help. We're very glad to direct them to resources. The AANS has um, actually a lot of historical material and a lot of documents. So do any number of good libraries around the country. Most of this material is now digitized, so it's quite accessible. The question is how and where to look. So just a couple of examples. If people are interested, for example, in spina, um, one of the things that's been forgotten is that the, in the early part of the 20th century, the main reason people operated on the spine was injury or tuberculosis. And there's an entire literature around the use of things like expedients like whalebone to try to achieve fusions. People have forgotten about that. And yet, the use of allografts is based on some very, very early and very interesting experimentation. Same thing can be said about almost every part of neurosurgery from vascular to peripheral nerve. And we would be, any of the people who are involved in the section, would be very glad to accommodate questions and to work with anybody who's interested. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting, Theo, uh, and I'm glad you brought up that example of the whalebone. I, I often think about neurosurgeons being very much like pioneers that uh, maybe maybe we're not as evidence-based because, uh, you know, the field has has its beginnings in the treatment of such horrible diseases, and there's so much need uh, for new innovation that maybe we are more pioneering, and that creates all these very interesting aspects of of our field. And I feel almost like neurosurgeons innately almost have a stronger interest in history than most other specialties. What do you think about that? I mean, I feel like, I mean, the fact that we have one of our nine sections being the history section kind of speaks to that as opposed to some other medical fields. I, th I think you're absolutely right. I also think that there's certain personal characteristics of neurosurgeons. Um, not to make too much of it, but it takes a certain amount of courage and a certain amount of 
um, devotion to be a neurosurgeon. Not all specialties, I don't think, have that same characteristic quality in the same way. But neurosurgeons really care about the people who train them. And most neurosurgeons can trace their training and can trace their approach to neurosurgery to certain people and to certain paths. Um, it's important to preserve that. Maybe you want to change it. Maybe you want to keep it. But there's a wonderful example that I love, which um, has to do with innovation in neurosurgery. It turns out at the turn of the 19th century, not the 20th, the 19th century, uh, one of the great neurosurgical figures, Horsley, in London, carried out an operation using full sterile technique, so gown, mask, and gloves. The operation was reviewed by one of the British journals. It took about two hours. Also, he used anesthesia, of course. And the journal uh, complimented him on his work and said, well, you know, he used full sterile technique, but had he been a better surgeon, that would not have been required. <laughs> So it's really interesting to learn how ideas proliferate, how they take root, and what it takes for them to be displaced. We've seen at least two major changes over the past 30 years, one in endovascular surgery and the other in spine, in, in, in spine fusion and the management of complex spine cases. You might want to add stereotactic radiosurgery to that. You might want to add now changes in chemotherapy and immunotherapy, all of which can be part of neurosurgery and are part of neurosurgery. I think that that's something very important for neurosurgeons who are in practice today, those who are academic, and those who are in training as well to understand and to pursue. Now, it's so interesting, as you mentioned, the individuals and the people and the names within neurosurgery. Um, I, I think of the list of famous and historic neurosurgeons we all know, uh, Cushing, Horsley, as you mentioned, Drake and Dandy, uh, Penfield and Lexell. Many of these names live on in diagnoses that we treat and in instruments that we use to treat them. But I wonder if in your study of the history of our field, you could think of any forgotten names, um, any neurosurgeons that uh, live on in your mind that are not these famous figures that we often discuss and that live on in the operating rooms, but that in your mind stand out in the history of our field and play a larger role than we may commonly give them credit for? I think there are. Start with Hugh Cairns at Oxford, who um, headed up the British neurosurgical forces during the Second World War. Go to Murray Faulkner, who was one of the pioneers in temporal lobe epilepsy at the Maudsley. He was a New Zealander, actually. Um, there's a neurosurgeon named Kolodny, who in the first part of the 20th century came to the Midwest and was one of the first individuals to do neurosurgery there. There are a number of Canadian neurosurgeons who also went out into the relative wilderness. Uh, most of them did only neurosurgery, but some of them did some general surgery and all of them did neurology as well. You think of people like Hakim of the Shunt, um, not a neurosurgeon, but somebody who contributed hugely to the history of neurosurgery and the practice of neurosurgery by introducing a new solution to a problem. Um, we could keep on going. There are many, many such names. And in fact, perhaps one way to think about 
history of neurosurgery is to say, what can you do with it? What can you look at? Maybe a little bit of an excursus, but I think it's worthwhile. You can look at chronology, what happens first. That's not so satisfying. You can look at biography, the history and the story of famous people. That's really useful. So, Teo, you know, it's it's interesting because you've brought up so many of the important contributions. And I'm, I'm always talking about this in the OR, you know, about how Harvey Cushing had started the anesthetic record with blood pressure monitoring and how the bipolar was invented and all the hemostatics that are, that are chemically uh, sort of induced, they sort of came from neurosurgery as well, right? So there's so many innovations. And, and I see the importance and you see the importance, but how do you talk to young people about this? So for residents, for example, they're I hate to sound like an old person, but there's often this idea that like, yeah, you know, that's the old stuff. How do you get them interested in the history? Well, I don't know that I have a magic answer for that, but here's what I found. Um, when you look at uh, kids today who go to medical school, they're the best and the brightest. They're usually very curious and something I'm always afraid happens, whether in college or in medical school or in residency, that they get I'm tired, but there's so much to learn. There's so much to assimilate that anything extra is too much. So I think the way to get them interested is to show them the relevance of what the historical record says and to show them that that'll help them ask questions and answer questions. And it'll keep them curious and it will keep them nimble mentally in terms of neurosurgery and in terms of medicine generally. So as you said, you know, Harvey Cushing, um, we know him as a neurosurgical pioneer, but you don't have to look very far to see the other things that he did. And they were very important. The other thing that I think is important to discuss is errors that are made in neurosurgery, whether they're policy errors. For example, when I was being trained, I was told neurosurgeons should never do spine fusions. That's for the orthopedic surgeon to do. And clearly that was a bias, perhaps only in my institution. But it took a while before people turned around and said, hey, wait, neurosurgeons not only can do fusions, they can do it as well or better than anybody else and contribute to the field. Well, it's very important to understand what people had done before in order to figure out what you're going to build in terms of cages or in terms of fusion devices or in terms of prostheses of other sort, what materials to use you know, what is a material that will absorb? What will be a material that can be incorporated into bone? Questions of that sort. There are also eternal questions that we've still not answered. We've still not figured out how to deal with vasospasm. Why is that? We've still not really figured out how to deal with forms of meningeal irritation. We're still not really perfect in dealing with problems with the circulation of cerebrospinal fluid after infection or after bleeding or after injury. Why is that? We're, st we're still not perfect in dealing even with craniosynostosis and a whole bunch of congenital disorders. Why is that? It's a lot easier to understand the literature and then go forward than just try to figure it out on your own. That's what I would tell the residents. It's, some, it's a way of them to be immersed in the culture of their profession. It'll make them not only better neurosurgeons, but I suspect better teachers in their time. 
These are captivating questions um, as you state them. And speaking again as a trainee, these questions do captivate me. I wonder if for those of us young in the field, um, anywhere from medical students interested in neurosurgery up through residence fellows, um, what ways are there to get involved in the history section? What ways can we contribute to this ongoing process to record, um, understand, and contextualize the roots of our field and the source of what we do every day for our patients? First of all, the Journal of Neurosurgery and every other journal of neurosurgery in Europe, in the United States, welcomes historical contributions. Second, most libraries, most university libraries, I should say, will have a reference librarian who will be absolutely delighted to help research a question from an historical standpoint. Third, we would welcome residents, medical students, young faculty to join the history section. We'd be delighted. And, you know, the interesting thing about history is that it's a very, very um, kind of compelling, growing interest. There are neurosurgeons I know who are specialists in one figure or one operation or one period. And there are others who have this incredibly eclectic view of the profession and can discuss it for hours on end. Both work. Both are contributions. Both are interesting. We would welcome papers from residents, from medical students, from young faculty. We would welcome their entries for some of the prizes that we offer. And as I said earlier, we would be delighted to work with anybody who's interested in pursuing a historical topic. Well, Theo, I can attest to the fact that not only do you bring a great deal of gravitas to the history section, but also a lot of fun. And uh, a couple history dinners that I've been to at the AANS meeting, it's always really a fantastic uh, and enlightening uh, evening full of fun and joy and some good food and wine. And and I would I would echo your uh, your welcome, if you will, your invitation to the young people that there is still a lot of knowledge to be passed down to the next generation. So thank you for thank you for uh, for sharing that with us and leading the section. So on behalf of the Neurosurgery Podcast, uh, myself, JP, and the AANS, I do want to thank you for your service as chair of that section. And uh, if folks want to reach out to you, do you have a contact email or something they can reach you at? By all means, the best way to reach me is my personal email, which is tfdaggy, T is in tango, F is in foxtrot, delta, alpha, golf, india at gmail.com.